I'm actually standing in London right now. It's been a, a wild few days. We're over here uh, with our Mercy UK partners. They're having a, a special fundraiser here in London. And then uh, in the next few days, we head to Yorkshire to kind of reevaluate everything since COVID has, you know, hit the, the whole world. And all the, you know, every church I know of is having to recalibrate. And so we came over to, to kind of do some, some uh, going back to the drawing board, you know, to find out what missions looks like uh, for Clearview and for uh, our, our partnership with Mercy UK, and, but uh, it's, it's actually been a really great week before that. Michelle and I have always talked about trying to um, go to Europe for our 25th wedding anniversary, which we celebrated this year, and so she wanted to see Paris, and, and I said, well, if we're going to France... Uh, then then I, I have to see where my grandfather came across Omaha Beach. So we spent several days in Normandy. And, uh, man, the gratitude of the French toward Americans is, is astounding. I, I, I just couldn't believe how much gratitude. And they're flying American flags in another country just to say thank you. And so it's, it's uh, even still to this day, it's been really neat. So it's been a, a life-changing story for the, the Cruz family uh, because of all that my grandfather did to join that war effort. So, uh, you know, um, as we're up here this week, it's going to be, quite significant. You know, post-COVID, uh, as I said, churches are recalibrating. If you, if you watch, you know, our, our attendance has been on the climb uh, now in, in, uh, in 2022, and, and so starting to slowly creep out of all that COVID did to have to reset a church. And so that's what we're looking at, missions initiatives here in, in internationally, and then also with our Give Us Franklin movement. So honestly, um, after, after the first of the year, you're going to see some pretty heavy, significant uh, in, initiatives in missions locally and internationally that, that we're going to need your presence in. I think you're going to like it a lot. So today we've got Graham Inman. You know, what a privilege to have Graham with us uh, to give us that generational voice that Clearview so much needs. So Graham, thank you for always being a, a faithful part to step in and, and share with God's people on that. So you're going to have a great day. I'll see you. Uh, I'll see you this coming Sunday. Uh, have a great week and, and uh, get your boots on, folks, because it's going to, we got a lot coming at us. And it's going to be an exciting time in the, the, the short months ahead for us to, to go to higher ground uh, with what the Lord wants from us. It, uh, it's not often that the Lord moves in my heart to kind of go off script a little bit. It's not in the notes, but the Lord gave me a word for a minute. Um, it was almost even emotional back there. Um, it was the two words that came over my heart were go Vols. <laughs> <laughs> For a, for a long time, it's not, it's not often someone volunteers their prayer request. Um, somebody said, roll tide up here. Um, and uh, it's, it's not, uh, for, for years as a Tennessee fan, you're, you're not really, you, you get asked, what, are, what is your team good at? Um, it's not offense, it's not defense, it's not special teams. For most of my life, we've been good at hope um, for a really long time. Um, and it felt, good to, it felt good to win one yesterday. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the first of two letters the Apostle Paul uh, penned to the church in Corinth. We are continuing in our series. Uh, it's been a long run over the last several weeks, simply entitled Church. 
And over the last several weeks, we have been uh, looking at um, everything from foundational principles of the church to roles within the church to key, even recently, key indicators of church health, church success, church efficacy. And today is no different. We're going to move on through this series, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at a moment in Paul's life as a um, New Testament church planter where he's faced with a decision. He's faced with a moment that he's got he's to decide how he's going to handle a situation. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you're there. Verse number 1 says this. It says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes. Thank the Lord my mom didn't name me Sosthenes. Sosthenes was a ruler of the synagogue in Corinth. Paul's using his name as a, an endorsement. Uh, Sosthenes was not a believer. Paul shows up in Corinth and um, shares his story of conversion to Jesus, his faith in Jesus. And Sosthenes is converted. And so Paul is saying, basically, don't get it twisted. This is coming from me. And it's coming from a key leader in the city of Corinth. Verse two, he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those, highlight this word, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. He says in verse three, grace to you and peace from our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse four, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. In every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you were not lacking, listen to it, in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says in verse nine, God is faithful by whom we were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In the late 1800s, 1883 to be exact, there was a man by the name of Horace Wilcox. Horace Wilcox was a Jesus-loving man. He was a Christian, God-fearing man who was from the Midwest and had relocated his family from the Midwest to Southern California. He purchased a great parcel of land, a large sum of land just north of downtown Los Angeles. And he did so with the hope that God would use that piece of land to spark a revival across the nation. He had it in his heart that his family was supposed to be there and they were supposed to use this land for the glory of God, that the Lord would use this very soil to stir up a revival. And he was so committed to this mission to this vision. He was so adamant about this cause that he was even willing to give pieces of this land away to people who would join him in that mission, to people who would start house churches and build buildings that would house the church of God, that would extend ministry across Southern California and thus across the country. This was his hope, this was his dream, this was when he invited people to join him on. You may wonder, what did, this, what did he decide to call this piece of land, this neighborhood, this region of Southern California? Well, he, he left that to his wife to name this parcel of land. And she thought about it for a while. And then she named it after her favorite estate from the Midwest, an estate called Hollywood. That's right, the, the, the very Hollywood that you and I have become so familiar with over the last decades, 
was originally intended to be the epicenter of a spiritual awakening and revival across our country. Needless to say, the original intention compared to what actually took place, it fell well short of the original founder's intentions. The Apostle Paul knows this feeling all too well. Not too long before uh, this letter was penned to um, this church in Corinth, Paul walked into the town. And he walked into the town the same way Horace Wilcox walked into downtown Los Angeles with all sorts of plans and hopes and dreams about how God would move throughout the region of Corinth, it would work in the people there. And so he planted a church. And sure enough, with the Lord's help, he began to realize a lot of the things that he had set out to see. In its infancy, the church of Corinth was seeing people trust Jesus left and right. They, they, were, they were seeing people baptized. They were joining together in mission. They were living in deep and rich community together. It was a beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ lived out here on earth. Everything humming along just right. And so he leaves and he, he goes to plant the next church. And then in verse 11, we didn't read it, but if you were to keep reading, you'd read that he got a report from the house of Chloe there in Corinth, a woman who was influential in this church. And he got a report from her that things have not gone well, that things have taken a bit of a turn, that they are a church who has become divided. They're a church who is fighting constantly. They're a church who is drowning in their own immorality. Things are not going well. A church who was once driven was now in disarray. A church that was once determined was now distracted. And Paul gets this news, knowing the church that he left behind in Corinth and hearing the report of what was happening now. And he hears these words coming from the house of Chloe. And in the light of all of the mess that he's got going on, he begins to write this letter. And by the way, there are two letters to the Corinthian church. They're the longest letters Paul wrote, and there are two of them. Um, the Greek word for the, the best describes the word, uh, the, the word that best describes the church of Corinth is jacked up. Um, there's a lot happening in this church. And Paul has heard the reports of all of this stuff that is going on. And what is his response? Somehow in his spirit, in his heart of hearts, he says these words in verse 4. He says, in the midst of all of the stuff going on, he says, I give thanks to my God for you. This word, forgive thanks, is the Greek word eucharisto, the word that we get the English word eucharist from. This is not a platitude. This is not a word that Paul is just exchanging some greeting. No, this is an intentional word that he used that it literally translates to deep gratitude. So here, here we have, just to put it into perspective, we have the Apostle Paul hearing all that he's heard about the junk that's going on in the church of Corinth, and he looks at them in the face and he goes, I thank my God, I'm grateful for you. Really, Paul? How in the world does that make sense? This is a church, if you were to read through the book of just 1 Corinthians, this is a church that Paul himself would say in chapter 3 is living in carnality and living in the flesh, and Paul says, I'm thankful for you. In chapter 5, he actually addresses one of them specifically and says, one of you is even sleeping with your own stepmother, and I'm thankful for you. In, in, verse, in chapter 6, he addresses they're dragging each other into court, the division that is rampant through this church, and he looks at him and says, I'm thankful for you. 
In chapters 8 and 9, he talks about how they're arguing and bickering over minor things, food sacrificed to idols, all of the things that were so trivial in the grand landscape of the church. And he says, yet I'm thankful for you. Chapter 11, he addresses their making a mockery of the Lord's Supper and the ordinances of the church. And he says, I'm thankful for you. And then in chapter 12 and in chapter 14, he addresses the idea of the gifts of the Spirit and how they are using them to divide each other, to measure each other against one another. And it's causing all sorts of problems. And yet he says, even in the selfishness, I'm thankful for you. Even in the midst of all of the dysfunction and the disappointment, the discouragement the church of Corinth had generated, Paul was able to find himself profoundly and truthfully thankful for them. Knowing all of their flaws, all of their shortcomings. Sure, he, it, we know if we keep reading, he is going to address all of the stuff going on, right? He's not letting them go unscathed. He has a lot to say. And he's going to address all of these situations and in some instances even give some pretty harsh instruction. But none of that is coming before they hear him say the words, I thank my God for you. So how is Paul able to do that? That doesn't make any sense to me. This is Paul literally telling him in the midst of, of a frustrating moment, hey church, I am not giving up on you. I am recommitting to you. I'm doubling down on you. I'm believing in you. I am not going anywhere. I'm recommitting to you, even with all of that in the backdrop. Now, how in the world is Paul able to say such a thing? It doesn't make sense to me. As I wrestled even through this text this week, putting myself in the shoes of Paul. Paul's a guy who had done the, the, the grueling and the cumbersome and the meticulous and the tiring work of planting this church. He'd been there. He'd given his own blood, his own sweat, his own tears to this place. He had walked life with them, given of himself to them. He loved them, and he led them. He was one of them. I have to believe when he hears these words come from the report, I have to believe in his humanity. Here's the news from Chloe's house, and he, his mind wanders back to the good old days. The days when there wasn't any dysfunction, the days when there wasn't as much confusion, the, the division wasn't there. I'm convinced even for a moment that he went back to that very first day when he first walked into the streets of Corinth. Wide-eyed, bushy-tailed, ready to rock. Dreams ahead of him, blue skies in front of him. Remembers back to the day that he had all of these things in front of him. A, a movement of God in his heart to plant this fellowship, to reach this region. And then he looks at what it's become. I have to believe, I'll just be honest and transparent, if it were me and I'm in Paul's shoes, there are four words that come to mind. And they are, you had one job. Like, I, I'm just going to be honest, in, in my own humanity, I'm looking at these people. You had everything that you're supposed to have. You, you have everything you needed. You're in an influential region. Uh, you, you have key leaders that are God-given and gifted leaders. How in the world did this happen? This is the all-time, are you kidding me moment. 
If, if anybody would have had a right to say, you know what, I'm ripping you up one way and down the other. I'm teeing off. I let, you better buckle up because here we go. I'm coming in angry. It's Paul. And sure, like we said, Paul does go through all of the different stuff, but he starts not in anger. He starts in love. He starts in, in thankfulness. This is a moment when he could have abandoned them. It's a moment when he could have given up on them. Could have moved on to the next church, just forgotten about the church of Corinth and said, you know what, you had a good thing, you blew it. Love you, mean it, see you. But he didn't do that. He would have been well within his right to say, I'm out. You, you blew it, it's over. But he didn't do that. Instead of retracting his commitment, he renewed it. And instead of rescinding his loyalty, he reaffirmed it. Instead of backing out, don't miss it, church, he leaned in. Instead of bailing away, he put another foot in. And what a word for us today. What a word for the, way, the, the, the moment in culture and in time that we find ourselves right now. This, even outside the church, this struggle of discontentment and the cycle of discontentment leading to discouragement, leading to disappointment, and leading to disconnection. If I don't like what they're doing over here, then I'll, I'll, I'll just go over there. If I don't like this car... I'll, I'll get rid of it and trade it in for that one. If, if I don't like that, if my son doesn't like that school, well, then we'll, we'll move him to that school. If, if my daughter doesn't like the team that she's on over here, well, we'll just move her to, to this team. If I don't like this neighborhood or this house anymore, well, you know what? I'm not committed to it. I'll, I'll just, I'll figure out a different way. I'll, I'll go over there. It's some, somewhere along the way, friends, this ideology has inexplicably found its way into the church. And I'm not talking about Clearview specifically. Please don't think this is a state of a union. I'm talking about the big C church. This is, a, this is a cultural issue all the way across the globe. And this cycle of discontentment and disappointment and discouragement breeds disconnection. And eventually this cycle takes over in the church. And it moves us to that point of disconnection. As I wrestled with this this week, I, I thought about this, this cycle and what seems so, so um, unending. Could it be that the root cause of our frustration is that we have begun to love the ideal more than the real? Is it possible that really what we're after is this ideal picture of what we think it should be. Specific to the church, we have this picture in our heads of, of what it should be, how people should act, how the music should go, how the preacher should preach, how the small group leader should lead, how the building should look, how the, the ministries should run. It's no secret you and I bring our rose-colored glasses into this place every day. And I, I want to pause. I do realize this sounds self-serving because I work here. <laughs> Reminding you, this is not me saying this. This is the Apostle Paul saying this. 
I don't come with any angle today. There is no consternation in my heart. This is a challenging word for me on this day too. We bring this, these rose-colored glasses into this place and we begin to love the ideal more than the real. Let's just be honest for a moment. Paul understood what you and I would do well to remember when it comes to the, the way our church, the, the American church, the global church operates. Um, it's a mess sometimes. It's a mess. Why? Because people showed up. And people were the original problem, right? Like we're only in this place because of people. So anywhere people go, problems go with them. We bring all of our stuff into the room every single week. In fact, the church may be best described as a group of imperfect people doing imperfect things in imperfect ways to serve a perfect God. But the tension that you and I face is that none of us would claim perfection outwardly But then in in this place, we have moments, in in the church, we have moments where we're shocked by our own humanity. That we were taken aback by the, the, the depravity that the scripture is so clear is in our hearts that sometimes we look up and go, how in the world did that happen? The Apostle Paul knew that people were messy. And I'm owning that as well. If I haven't failed you yet, it's coming. Let me give you some more time. I'm not good at a lot of things, but I've gotten pretty good over the last few years at disappointing people. Getting better at it. And Paul understood something that you and I would do well to understand. I believe it's what drives him in this moment. The disappointment is no excuse for disconnection. Disappointment's going to happen because of the humanity that exists in the church. We're going to let each other down. I can guarantee it. Put it on my job description. We'll disappoint me sometimes. And I'll get the personnel committee to sign it because I agree. We come into this place and, and we have this ideal and we look around and then when something real happens, we'll look up and go, well, what a shame. Who among us, friends? Who among us? That's what Paul understands at this moment. He understands that disappointment is no excuse for disconnection because the truth is the church of Jesus Christ has enough brokenness to go around. Whether we want to admit it or not, whether we want to be honest or not, there's enough brokenness even in this room to go around. But Paul knew there's beauty in the brokenness because even in the midst of the mess, The church of Jesus Christ, here's the point this morning, is still the place that God deposited everything we'd ever need. That's what drives Paul to a point of still being able to say, even in the midst of all of the mess, I'm thankful for you. Because the church is the only place God ever intended, the only place he ever deposited everything that we'd ever need. And you say, Graham, how do you know that? In verse 5, we read it a moment ago, Paul said these words to the church in Corinth can be applied here. In every way, you were enriched. In every way, you were enriched. In all speech, 
and all knowledge. This phrase, you were enriched, literally translates to made wealthy. You have an abundance of. You have been made wealthy in these two areas specifically to Corinth. He says in speech and in knowledge, these two spiritual gifts were the most fixated in the church of Corinth. The gift of speech being tongues and the gift of knowledge being prophecy. And he says, you have everything you need with what you've asked for. The gifts of the spirit have been given to the church And they're in abundance, and you already have everything that you need. And then he says this in verse 7. He says, so that you are not lacking in any gift. I want you to think about the gravity of those words. Imagine the Apostle Paul walking in here today and standing on the steps and going, hey, Clearview, you have everything you need. You are not lacking in any gift. It's important to remember who he addressed this letter to. This letter was not written to the pastor of the church of Corinth. This wasn't written to the leader of the area. This wasn't written to the church planter. Who does he address it to in verse two? He says, to the church of God in Corinth. He's not saying, hey, pastor, you have everything you need. Hey, ministry leader, you have everything you need. This is not to the the church leadership. No, this is to the body. He says, you, as the the collection of individuals, have everything that you need. Later on in the letter, Paul, in chapter 12, I mentioned a minute ago about spiritual gifts and how he divides them, now they've been dividing them up. And he goes into the spiritual gifts and he uses the analogy of a body. And he says that the body has many parts in the same way the church has many gifts. And no one part can say to the body, I have no need for you. It's the image that Paul is using to say, hey, all of these gifts are meant to work together. There is no one gift that works against the other one, that there is this unity that is brought under this roof and into these people. It's this picture of harmony. What Paul is getting at is everything that you and I need to flourish and to thrive in this life is found not in the gifts of the individual. It's found in the gifts of the collection of individuals known as the church. This is how Paul is able to look square in the face of all of the frustration and have a thankful spirit in him because he's not concerned just with what the people have done. He's concerned with who they are. He's saying, I know what's on, the, what's on the list. I've read the laundry list here, but I also know the list of things that God has deposited in you. That is, on the day that somebody's acting a fool, is, is being crazy, there's, a, there's, there's something that has happened. He reminds himself of the gifts that God has given to the church, the, the things that he has deposited and placed inside of them for the benefit of the church. No matter how crazy that person is, Paul understands, I need that person because God's given them something. God's given them something that this church needs. I'm thinking back now to a little church um, just outside of Memphis, Tennessee, a church called Faith Baptist Church in Bartlett. It's the church that I spent the first uh, about 25 years of my life almost. You probably never heard of it. And even if you had, you probably have never stepped foot on that campus. But if you did, If you walked on that campus this morning, pulled into the parking lot and made your way to the door, there's probably a greeter standing at that door, and oh, how I wish his name was Ernie Bryan. 
Mr. Ernie went to be with Jesus when I was in probably fifth or sixth grade, but I remember early on in my life, Mr. Ernie was, I could not wait to get to the church to meet Mr. Ernie. As even at his older age, he would stand on the back steps and he would have those little candies that have the strawberry wrapper around them that I, they will be, they'll be on the coffee tables in heaven, by the way. <laughs> He'd have those candies and a smile on his face. And my mom would tell the story that all of us, literally, we went through this back door on the back side of the church that nobody, we didn't have any reason to go back there except Mr. Ernie was back there. As you make your way through the, the campus of that church this morning, you would meet a man in the foyer named Ken Brady. Mr. Ken is a key volunteer in men's ministry, and he may have taught like one semester of my sixth grade Sunday school, and then he gave up on middle schoolers like everybody else does. <clears throat> But Mr. Ken, I didn't know it until the time I got married, but Mr. Ken had committed to pray for me every single day all four years of my high school career. You'd make your way through the, the foyer and, and over to the preschool area, and you'd meet a woman named Jane Nason. Miss Jane is a foster parent, has been rocking babies in that preschool longer than I've been alive. Faithful. You'd walk your way through the preschool wing and into the worship center. And I can guarantee you, if you walk in the back of that worship center this morning in about 30 minutes, you'd walk through the back doors and to your left, about two rows from the back, you'd see a bald-headed man and a blonde-headed woman, and their names are Ray and Marilyn LaCrouts. Miss Marilyn, we called her May May, was my first grade Sunday school teacher. She taught me everything I, a first grader, could ever know about Jesus. Mr. Ray was my fifth grade teacher. He invested so much into me, even as a punk fifth grader. About two sections over, four rows or five rows ahead of them is another couple named Ken and Sandra Perkins. Miss Sandra has taught the I'm a Christian now class for almost 25 years. I sat in her classroom in fifth grade. Mr. Ken has served in just about every manner possible, all the way from bed babies to personnel committee. He has been on every team that church has ever had. And then you take a seat, and the worship service would start, and in the front row of the choir, about five people from the left, you'll see a woman named Rebecca Hanna. Rebecca has Down syndrome and leads worship with our choir and loves and leads people to Jesus every single week. I get emotional even thinking about watching Rebecca Hannah worship. I, I guess all I'm saying this morning is if my ministry has impacted you in any way, it's because of them. It's because there are people who understood that God had given them gifts. That, that God had invested things into them and they were faithful people who just didn't have any quit in them. Sure, there are dark days, confusing seasons, but they are hands on the plow, man. They knew God had put something inside of them, and they weren't willing to let it rest. People who were far more influential and impactful in me than they even realized at the time. They invested for a time they may never see. A group of people who understood the power of the gifts that God has deposited inside of us. And so the, the question on the table this morning, if you haven't caught it to this point, is why do we need the church? And notice I didn't say, why is it good to go to church? I think all of us in the room, you're, you're here this morning. 
um, believe it to be inherently a good thing to be involved at church at some level, to attend with some level of regularity, to be obedient to serve or give or whatever it might be. But the question that I'm after this morning is why do you, why do I need the church? Why is it not, not why is it a good thing? Why do I need to be spiritual or why do I need to be seen in, in the fellowship? Why do I personally, how does God use the church for me? Why do I need it? Why do I need to stay connected to it? Why does Paul stay connected to it? Because it's the only place on earth that God ever intended for you and I to go to find what we need. He doesn't point you to anywhere else but to the church. The Bible literally says that we have been enriched in all things and we are not lacking in any gift. Meaning the church is where he's put everything that we need to thrive. That's no secret. The last few years in just about every church in the world has brought all sorts of challenges. In America, overseas, you won't, you, can, you, you won't find any church that has been completely immune to the effects of a pandemic and the unrest that has spanned across all sorts of different sections of culture. It's been a heavy few years. And that, that is translated even over to our church. Even at Clearview, we have been honest about the struggle that our church has been on for a while. And that, that struggle is not just an institutional struggle. That struggle is also an individual struggle. What you feel, what the church is feeling in the macro level, you and I are feeling in the micro level. It's been a heavy run. And I am no stranger to discouragement. I'm no stranger to the heaviness of life. I understand, believe it or not, 29 years old, but I understand weariness. I understand exhaustion. And I even understand the temptation and desire to want to throw in the towel sometimes on an individual level. I get it. That the Christian life is becoming more uh, culturally averse and difficult to live by the hour. I do understand the level of scrutiny that you and I live under as people of God and, and the, the weight that it can be. And for this, the Apostle Paul has a word at the end of our text. The end of verse 7, he says, as you wait, notice he doesn't say how long, for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will, here's the word, sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he finishes with three, three words that are helpful for us today. God is faithful. He'll sustain you. I can be, uh, I wouldn't say a history buff, but I do take an interest in American history at some level. And one of my favorite stories that came out of World War II was a story about a guy named Elgin Staples. Elgin Staples was a U.S. Navy officer stationed above the USS Astoria. And there was a particular day in World War II where the Astoria was involved in a battle and had taken some pretty devastating hits to the ship, and the ship began to sink. As the ship began to sink, Elgin was shot in the leg and was thrust overboard. And as he was thrown overboard, he hit the water, and praise God, his life belt that he was wearing triggered and activated and inflated and kept him afloat in the water. 
The ship goes down. There are soldiers who are stuck in the water, stranded for hours. And as, as Elgin was floating in the water, he began to just praise God for the, the belt that he was wearing, but he also began to study this belt meticulously. After all, it is the very device that is saving his life. He began to notice the intricacies, try to figure out how this thing even works. Notice the colors of the different parts and how they all work together. Noticed even there were numbers all over the, the, the life belt and, and he was just taking it all in. Eventually, long story short, he was rescued at sea and he was returned home to his hometown of Akron, Ohio. And there in Akron, Ohio, he, he sat down with his family and told all of his stories and especially the one where he was shot he was thrown overboard and the life belt was activated. And his mother took a, a keen interest to that story because his mother worked at a Firestone plant in Akron, Ohio. It was one of many plants in the United States who was part of what they did was make these life belts. And so she was fascinated that somebody that, that she knew and loved even had had their life saved by a device that her company had manufactured and he was telling her about how it all worked and kind of going over all of the different intricacies of it and he said mom there were all these numbers that were all over this life belt what, what was the deal with that and she said oh those numbers are there for accountability to the government the, they're, they're labeled to see um, they, they, those numbers co- coincide with an inspector the person who built the life belt and inspected it made sure it was good that way if one of them failed that it, they could track down who it was that was responsible for that. Yeah, their job was held accountable and all of that. And she said, by curiosity, do you remember those numbers that were on your life belt? And he said, do I remember them? He's like, I stared at it for hours. I remember them. And he rattled the numbers off, and his mother looked up and said, say those numbers again. And he rattled them off again, and she looked at him, and she said this, son, those are my numbers. Isn't it interesting that the very person who brought Elgin into life, the very person who created him is the same person who sustained him? Church, I know it's been a long run. I know individually and collectively we have had a difficult season in our own lives and even in this church, but can I tell you something? God's serial numbers are on our church. The one who created us is the one who will sustain us. The Bible is clear. You will be, uh, the, the, the scripture says that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. And oh, that it would be true. Oh, that we would believe it to be true. That the serial number, numbers from the hand of God plastered right on our side, that he will carry us through. So we stay connected, we stay in the fight, we press ever forward because we need each other. You know, you often don't think about sharing something with somebody like a tweet or an email or sending them a sermon or sending them a podcast. You don't often think of that as missions, but it is. It's not that you have to send it to the whole world or post every single thing we do at Clearview on your feed. But if, if you've heard a sermon or if you've listened to a podcast, think through your life. I mean, God, who needs to hear this? Sometimes it, it, it doesn't need to go on your Facebook page. 
Sometimes it needs to go on your Twitter, but sometimes just a simple text to one person can make all the difference in the world to sending them the Word of God in real time. Share it. You'd be surprised how far it goes.